This week on The Word of the Lord Endorse Forever, we continue on in James with a dead faith, faith in works, taming the tongue, a restless evil, and wisdom from above. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. How did it come about that in evangelicalism and Protestantism in general, the average Christian holds a view about the Lord's Supper that is not only contrary to Scripture, but contrary to what Christians have believed for almost two millennia regarding Christ's bodily presence in the sacrament of the altar. Many, many Protestant Christians deny that presence when the Bible clearly teaches it, the apostle affirms it, Jesus says it in the plainest language possible, this is my body, this is my blood, and uniformly until the time of the Reformation, when a few decided that it conflicted with their reason, Christians believed it without question. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about the presence of Jesus' body and blood in the sacrament of the altar Dr. Jordan Cooper, Executive Director of Justin Center, President of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, including his latest, The Doctrine of God, and creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Proofs That Christ, True Body and Blood Are Present in the Sacrament. Dr. Cooper, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Todd. Over the long swath of Christian history, over two millennia, has the real presence of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament been historically controversial? No, it really, from very early on, when we start reading the earliest church fathers that do make at least some kind of mention of the nature of the sacraments, we see it in, for example, Ignatius at the beginning of the second century, and then not not very long after that, we see it in Irenaeus and Justin Martyr as well. And we don't really see any controversy surrounding this question of, are we really receiving the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament? In fact, it seems pretty clear that that is just the consensus of the early church. There are some debates about uh, Tertullian as perhaps being one exception to that, but even then that's debatable. But I think it seems pretty clear that that was simply the accepted position of the church for a significant period of time. Now, all of the particulars of that hadn't really been worked out. So there was no you know, extensive discussion for example, about whether the bread and the wine actually remained in the sacrament of the altar, the the kinds of questions that are debated in the medieval period. And we see a little bit of some debates about that in the ninth century between someone named Retramnus and Redbertus, but both of them, even in the midst of that debate, acknowledge that what we receive in the sacrament is the body and blood of Christ. And so there really is not, at least on a you know, on a large scale, there is no debate really about this at all until the time period of the Reformation. In good Reformation fashion, when was this first doubted? When was this first called into question in the context of the Reformation? Yeah, so this was first doubted within the Reformation. There's there's basically one figure you can find just prior to the Reformation who talks about this 
but pretty much Ulrich Zwingli, who was the leader of the Swiss Reformation and also at least became an opponent of Luther over this very question. And Zwingli was certainly more rationalistic than Luther in his approach to theology. And for Zwingli, the idea that Christ's body and blood could actually be present on the altar during the celebration of the sacrament was simply not rational. He didn't believe that it was consistent with the ascension of Christ. It was his view that, well, if we say that as Christians, Christ has you know, ascended to the right hand of the Father, that means that, well, his body is at the right hand of God, and therefore it can't be on the altar. And so for Zwingli, that means that then we can't say that the true body and blood of Christ are here in the sacrament. And he does try to make arguments from the text, but really I do think it was primarily a, a presupposition that he was taking to the text. But that, that's really where this more purely symbolic approach shows up to the sacrament. Is there in Zwingli a potentially undisclosed difference with Christian orthodoxy on the incarnation of Christ when he concluded that Christ, according to his human nature, cannot be bodily present at the right hand of God and on the altar? Yeah, so for Zwingli, a lot of his theology really boils down to what is more of a philosophical principle than you know, an exegetical or theological one. And that is that Zwingli continually made the claim that the finite is not capable of the infinite. And so if you were to say that somehow the finite can contain the infinite, that would be a contradiction, according to Zwingli. And with that being the case, we can't claim, in his view, that the infinite God could enter into finite things like what we see in the sacrament of the altar. And so he opposed this idea that the human nature of Christ could be omnipresent precisely because he would say that that, well, omnipresence is an attribute of infinity because it is the lack of being specified locally to one place. If human nature is finite and not infinite, that means that the human nature of Christ cannot have a kind of omnipresence and therefore he can't be present in the sacrament. And Lutheran theologians have consistently said that this principle that Zwingli has here really doesn't work within Christian orthodoxy as a whole, because that essentially is the groundwork for the incarnation. I mean, the incarnation is nothing but the infinite becoming finite or, or uniting himself to the finite, not that his infinitude disappears, but there is this divine mystery that we confess in the incarnation that the infinite God has united himself to this finite human nature. And so if that's the case with the incarnation, why would we have an issue with saying this in these other ways? So yeah, I think Zwingli's principle ultimately, if it's taken to its logical end, would have to lead to a denial of the incarnation. So let's begin with, this isn't simply the seed of doctrine for this. This is in fact a dominical command and proclamation the words, this is my body. What would you say of that as the first, and really, if, if we're just going to be kind of snide about it, the totally sufficient <laughs> declaration on what the Lord's Supper actually is. If you get it from Jesus' own mouth, you hardly need to appeal to anyone else. 
Yeah, sure. So this, these debates surrounding the nature of Christ's presence in the sacrament really center primarily and first on the words of institution. And really all of the other arguments that we look at and, and we'll be looking at center around how it is that we interpret this. And those are kind of in some ways, secondary arguments to demonstrate how it is that the early church understood these particular words of Jesus, right? This is my body, this is my blood. And so the someone like Zwingli is essentially going to say that this is my body really means this represents my body. And it doesn't really mean this is my body. And there are plenty of responses to that. But just to say, first, I think we should have a general principle that when we interpret scripture, and that principle is not to say that everything in scripture is literal. Of course, we have poetic language and we all grant that at times there's you know, poetic or metaphorical language. I mean, scripture uses all the various different forms of, of human speech. But I do think we should approach the scriptures with the basic assumption that we do take it, the words of scripture at face value, unless there is sufficient reason contextually or otherwise to show that that's not how it is to be taken. And when we're dealing with something like the words of institution, we have we can ask that question. Is there any, reading at face value, well, Jesus holds it and says, this is my body, right? He holds the, the cup and says, this is my blood of the New Testament. So is there any sufficient reason in the context or in the grammar there or in the way it's interpreted in any other part of the New Testament that it's anything other than what it seems to be from a straightforward reading. And there I would simply say, no, there's no evidence of that at all, either within the context or within other interpretations of this throughout the rest of the New Testament. But the thing that people are often going to point to is they're gonna say, hey, look, you all recognize that there's symbolic language in scripture because Jesus says, I am the vine. This seems to be the go-to argument that you hear from people. Well, you don't take that literally. You don't literally believe Jesus is a plant. so. Therefore, because you interpret that symbolically, why can we not also just interpret this is my body symbolically? And when we're looking at something parallel like that, we have to go a little further and say, well, what exactly is it that is symbolic, if we're going to use that, or, or metaphorical um, in that phrase, I am the vine, and is that then a parallel to this is my body? Because we do have other statements, especially in John's gospel, you have all the I am statements. You know, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the door. But the question is, when Jesus says any of those things, whether it's I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, or I am the door, what aspect of those sentences are symbolic? If it's a parallel statement to this is my body, and what you're saying is this is my body means this represents my body, then you have to ask the question, when Jesus says, say, I am the vine, does he mean to say, I represent the vine? Is, is that really how you interpret that particular passage? And that's not the case at all. Jesus isn't representing a vine. If there's anything kind of metaphorical in that passage, it is the vine, right? Not the am, not the verb in the sentence. So Jesus is saying, he really is the vine. Well, what is the vine? A vine is essentially a, a kind of life source, right? So I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, he's saying that he is a life source to us, the branches, that just as a vine and branch have this connection in terms of physical life, our spiritual life arises from Jesus in that same way. When Jesus says something like, I am the door, what is he saying? Is he saying, I represent a door? Of course not. No, he's saying he literally is a door to heaven, right? the door to get to the place where the Father is. 
And so he's using kind of metaphorical language, but in some ways it's just literally true. He really is, if you think of Adora as the way to enter in somewhere, or talking about the way to the father, then he literally is the door. So if we look at these various passages, they're simply not parallel to this is my body. And so when Jesus is saying is or am in those other places, he is saying it literally. He is not using it to mean represents. So because of that, I think you know when Jesus holds the bread in his hand and says, this is my body, we have no precedent grammatically or in any other way to say that is means represents or anything else. There's an interesting statement of John Calvin in the Institutes where he's dealing with this particular question. And, you know, John Calvin taking more of Zwingli's interpretation of the words of institution, where when he's critiquing the Lutherans, there's a phrase where he says, Jesus is not to be subjected to the ordinary rules of grammar. What's so interesting about that is that it's a recognition that when Calvin looks at the words of institution, right, the phrase, this is my body, and does compare it to things like I am divine, he even recognizes that they're not grammatically parallel to the point that he has to essentially say that, well, Jesus isn't just using ordinary grammar at all in this particular context. I think the capper to that one, just to stay in that vein for a moment, is Jesus' statement, his trifecta, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I don't know of any believing Christian who would say that he is not literally the way, the truth, and the life. And I think that statement runs the rest of those statements and tells us how to read them. Is Jesus a door? No, but he most certainly is the door. That's a pretty key statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Yeah, you you run into a lot of problems theologically if you start saying that Jesus just represents the way. That undercuts his entire person, work, and mission. So yeah, I think that's a very valid point, that that is kind of the central I am statement that becomes kind of interpretive grid to understand how it is that the other I am statements are to be read. Dr. Jordan Cooper of Justin Sinner is our guest. We're talking about the presence of Christ's body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. Another reason for that presence is the Lord's Supper's connection to the Passover. We'll get into that next. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Come join LCMS Worship for the Institute on Liturgy, Preaching, and Church Music, July 9th through the 12th, 2024, at Concordia University, Nebraska. We'll gather under the theme, The Songs of Deliverance, and focus on the Psalms together. Everything you need to know is at lcms.org slash worship institute, and you can look for registration information in the early part of 2024. That's lcms.org slash worship institute, God's mission right where you are. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. 
Augustano Lutheran Church in Moscow, Idaho, invites you to receive the gifts of Christ with us. We preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of your sins, risen from the dead for your justification and life. Confessional, sacramental, liturgical. We're a new Missouri Synod congregation on the Palouse. We meet Sundays near the University of Idaho, 1015 West C Street. Bible study, 9 a.m., divine service at 10. Find us on Facebook or visit MoscowLutheran.org. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our first stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about the presence of Jesus' body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. He's creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Proofs That Christ's True Body and Blood Are Present in the Sacrament. Another reason that you give is the connection between the Lord's Supper and the Passover. Talk about that. Yeah. So we're looking at the Lord's Supper. So we can look at the words of institution as we've we've talked about. That's kind of the, the most basic foundational element of our understanding of the Lord's Supper. But then we could take a step back and say, okay, what's the actual context in which the words of institution are spoken? Well, the context of the words of institution is the celebration of, of a Passover meal between Jesus and the apostles just prior to his betrayal and being handed over to the authorities and then his death. And Jesus celebrated three Passovers uh, with the apostles that are mentioned, which is how we know his ministry was three years, was through these three Passovers that he celebrates. And so at the last of these these Passovers, it was while there was you know the, the unleavened bread that was traditionally celebrated with the Passover. And there were also multiple glasses of wine that were part of the Passover meal. But he takes those ordinary elements of the Passover celebration and uses those to say the words of institution. And what that means is that the Lord's Supper is very purposefully tied to the Passover, right? It's not just like that Jesus just so happens to have been eating a Passover meal with the disciples at that time. But the Passover itself was a picture of Christ. It was a type. It portrayed what Christ would come to do in the world in that in the Passover, there was the celebration of God's redemption of the Israelites from the Egyptians. And that redemption occurred through the death of a lamb and then the spreading of the blood of that lamb on the doorpost of the households of the Israelites. And this spreading of the blood of the lamb over the door of the Israelites would then result in those the Israelite children in those families being spared from death. In other words, the blood of the lamb saves from death. And when Jesus says things like, this is my body, this is my blood, he's preparing them for the fact that he is about to die, right? He is about to be, and has been really that Passover lamb, but he's really to be the fulfillment of the Passover as as the spotless lamb, he now is giving up his life so that we might be saved from from eternal death. And within the context of that, we have to think about the Passover celebration, because the Passover celebration was not merely to be understood as just a remembrance of a past event, but an actual participation in God's redemptive activity. 
So when the Israelites killed a lamb, they didn't partake of a meal which was a mere symbolic eating of a lamb. In fact, they actually ate the lamb. So there is this intimate connection. You see this in the Old Testament sacrifices as well. But there is an intimate connection between the sacrifice that is offered and the eating of that sacrifice. Because through the eating of the sacrifice, you are partaking of the benefits of that sacrifice, as the people of Israel did through the eating of the Passover lamb. Now, with the different sacrifices, this eating can take different forms in the book of Leviticus beyond you know, just the, the Passover. And some of those are totally burned. And the complete burning of the sacrifice really is supposed to be God kind of eating or consuming the sacrifice. And others were shared between the priests and God, and then others with the offerer as well. But the point is that within all of these sacrifices, there is some kind of consumption of the one who is sacrificed, the sacrificial lamb that is part of the, the whole process of sacrifice. And so what that means is that Jesus in saying, this is my body, and he's telling them this is given for them as in unto death, he is the sacrificial lamb, is saying that just as the lamb as a sacrificial animal was killed for the sins of the people and also eaten, so he now is the sacrificial lamb who is killed and also is consumed by those who are receiving the benefits of his death. That leads naturally to the words of the Apostle Paul when he talks about a participation in the body of Christ. Yeah, absolutely. So St. Paul gives us some pretty helpful interpretations of the words of Jesus in the words of institution. And this shows up in the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's in chapters 10 and 11. Now, the reason why this whole topic comes up when Paul's writing to the Corinthians is because there is a significant abuse of the Lord's Supper that's going on in the church. And this abuse of the Lord's Supper takes a number of forms. One is people are dividing against each other. They're all fighting, but they're coming to the same table as if they have unity, but they really don't. They're also doing things like just getting drunk off communion wine and taking from others. They're not recognizing the sacredness of the event that they are partaking in. So Paul gives them this reminder then of what's going on in the sacrament of the altar. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, he says, the cup of blessing, which we bless, is it not the communion or some translations have participation in the blood of Christ? the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So what he's doing here is he's reminding them of the seriousness of Holy Communion by reminding them that in receiving the bread, the host coming together for the sacrament of the altar, what we are doing is actually sharing in or participating in or communing with the very body of Christ. And then he does the same with the blood of Christ. Are we not sharing in the blood of Christ? And so for Paul, the seriousness of the supper, the reason why it's such a serious sin to abuse the supper is because it is the time when we are really sharing in Jesus's actual body and in his actual blood. And this makes a lot of sense within the Old Testament context of the observation of the Passover. And in the ancient world among the Jewish people, it was understood that when the Israelites 
yearly partake of the Passover, they are not participating merely in some kind of intellectual remembrance of something that happened in the past. The understanding was we are becoming one with our people. We are becoming one with the history of God's people. We are sharing in some mysterious way in that actual original Passover event. And so Paul is drawing on that conception, that kind of language in, in what he's doing here. Now, that seems very clear that what Paul is saying can't really be understood in a purely symbolic sense. Zwingli tries to make an argument that it was purely symbolic, and he does this in a very odd way. Well, first he says, well, sharing in the body of Christ there can't really be sharing in the actual body of Christ. What he's talking about here is the body of Christ that is the church, because Paul does, in this same text, talk about the church as the body of Christ. Now, I say to that part of Zwingli's argument, I can certainly understand how you could come up with that interpretation, but that interpretation certainly doesn't work when you look at the phrase, the blood of Christ, because he doesn't only say we share in the body of Christ, but through the cup, we share in the blood of Christ. And Zwingli goes on to say, well, St. Paul is calling the church here the blood of Christ because the church is covered by the blood of Christ. And to that I say, we just we have no precedent for that whatsoever. There is nowhere in scripture that the church is referred to as the blood of Christ. Every time the blood of Christ is mentioned in scripture, it means, well, the actual blood of Christ. So I just don't think you have any grounding to, uh, to use that kind of interpretation. So again, the most straightforward, clear way to understand this is that Paul is saying that when we partake of the elements of the sacraments, we really are partaking of the actual body of Christ and the actual blood of Christ. And I think the kicker there in response to Zwingli's argument is that he mentions the bread, the loaf actually, and he mentions the cup. Two things that if he were merely, as Paul will elsewhere, talk about the church as the body of Christ, never mentions a cup or a loaf. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, it's very clear that what he's talking about is what we actually receive, right? What we actually eat, what we actually drink. And Paul does then use that within this discussion here to then say, therefore, we should also have unity within what is the body of Christ that is the church. Like they're a reflection of each other. But part of the reason why there is that mystical union that is between brothers and sisters in Christ in the church is precisely because we are sharing of that one actual body of Christ as we receive him in the Eucharist. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. We're talking about the presence of Jesus' body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. We'll come to the Apostle Paul's warning about unworthily eating Christ's body next. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., Cross weh.com slash LPR. Theology has consequences. It doesn't live just in ivory towers, but actually in the very choices and daily lives of God's people as they live out what they believe and confess in the world. To learn more about how theology affects our daily lives, this February issue of The Lutheran Witness discusses how the theology of Seminex affected the very lives of God's people in the LCMS 
and how God worked to preserve his church. Visit cph.org witness to subscribe. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. Issues Etc. is brought to you in part today by Luther Academy. Luther Academy serves Lutheran pastors to the ends of the earth by providing theological conferences for pastors in West Africa, Europe, Uganda, India, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Madagascar, Europe, and South America. Learn how you can help Lutheran pastors attend these conferences at lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. We're talking about the presence of Jesus' body and blood in the sacrament of the altar. Dr. Jordan Cooper is our guest. Dr. Cooper, we come to uh, Paul's sternest warning there in 1 Corinthians in a book full of warnings. This one has to do with unworthily receiving Christ's body in the Lord's Supper. Yeah, absolutely. So this shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. And it's important to note that this particular text shows up right after the words of institution. And verse 27 says, therefore... Now, what that means is what he's about to say is an implication or the really the only logical kind of application coming out of what he just said, which means that we have the words of institution and then Paul is telling us how to interpret the words of institution. So after he recites those words of institution coming from Jesus in 24 and then in 25, and then reminding us also in verse 26, that this is also a proclamation of the Lord's death until his coming. In verse 27, then he says, the therefore, because of the words of institution, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Right? So what he's doing is saying, this is the application of what I just said. Because Jesus said, this is my body and this is my blood, that is why if you sin against this sacrament, you are sinning against the body and the blood of Christ. And this seems to be such a clear interpretation of the words of institution that I don't really see how you can interpret it honestly in any other sense. Now, note that like, if what Paul was saying here was simply, this is something that God commanded and it's a sin to disobey what God commanded. Right? in some kind of general sense, then Paul's conclusion here would be, therefore, 
because God commanded this and it's important, you are sinning against God if you abuse the supper. Or even, hey, Jesus instituted it, so you're sinning against the Son. No, he gets so specific to say, what is this sin? This is not just a sin against God. It's not just a sin against the Son, but it's specifically a sin against the body and the blood of Jesus. How do you have something that is a particular sin against the body and blood of Jesus if what you're partaking of is just a symbolic meal where you're not actually coming into contact with the body and blood of Jesus. That's precisely why this is so serious. This is the uniqueness of the sacrament of the altar. There are all sorts of other sins and they're all very serious. And they're all sins against God. We could talk about all sorts of things as sins against the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in various ways. But there is something very particular about this sin, that it is a sin against the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And so the only way that this makes any coherent sense in Paul's argument is to recognize that in his approach to the words of institution, St. Paul understands this in its most literal, straightforward sense. And he says they eat and drink judgment upon themselves. I mean, that connection to the actual actions, which are, again, part of the words of institution, to eat and drink, that is such a strong connection to what's actually going into their mouths. Yeah, 100%. So he's connecting that to the actual eating and drinking are what brings judgment, which is very different from saying you're abusing something that God commanded and therefore God will judge you. He's saying that what you actually receive is the judgment, right? So something in what you're actually eating and drinking is judging you itself. What is that? The body and blood of Christ. This also very strongly militates against Calvin's approach to this because John Calvin tries to say that only those who have faith receive the body of Christ and the blood of Christ in some way. And he has this convoluted way of explaining how this works. But he says, but those who don't have faith for you know, the unbeliever or for Calvin, the non-elect who comes to the sacrament, they're not really receiving anything at all. They're just receiving basically an empty symbol. And you really can't come to that conclusion in light of how particular St. Paul is here, exactly for that reason, because he's, he's not saying this is a judgment of God from the outside upon you for doing something bad. He's saying that the judgment is actually within the thing you're eating and drinking. And so it must be the very body and blood of Christ, because that's what you're sinning against. And therefore, that's what's actually bringing judgment upon you. In a general sense, before we go on to the church fathers, I often make the point that if the apostles understood Jesus' words of institution as many Protestant Christians do today, as this represents my body, I think they would have taught in that direction. But with respect to St. Paul himself, he seems to double down on the literal reading of Christ's words. Yeah, 100%. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And that is an important question to ask when you look at things like, well, how do the apostles interpret something? Ask yourself when you're reading texts like this, had Paul understood the sacrament, say, in the way that a Baptist does, would he have said the things that he does? Don't just ask, is there a possible way to kind of make Paul's words or arguments somehow fit within our system? <laughs> Which you can always do that, right? You can always try to squeeze scripture into whatever mold you want if you try hard enough or make enough weird categories to do that. But you want to ask, if Paul really believed a Baptist approach, would he really honestly come up with this conclusion? And when you ask those kinds of questions, I think it's 
it's very straightforward that the only reason Paul would have come to the conclusions that he did was if he had this very strict literal reading. And I think you're exactly right that he has an opportunity here to clarify things when he's talking to the Corinthians, because now there are abuses going on within the sacrament. And here is a great place for Paul to explain what's actually going on is not actually a literal reading. He doesn't do any of that. He does, as you said, double down. Uh, you know, he reinforces what is that that literal sense. And that, and I know this is the next point, but that also lines up with something you find among the church fathers. And that is that one of the consistent accusations against the early Christians from the pagan world was that Christians were cannibals, which seems like a very odd accusation. <laughs> Why on earth would they think Christians were cannibals? Well, I mean, if you think about the way that the Lord's Supper was celebrated in the early church, the divine service itself was public until you got to the you know the sacrament of the altar. And so within a Christian service, those who were not yet baptized, they would be excluded from the communion service. And I think this certainly says something about the closed communion question too, but they were excluded from the communion service. And then those who were there, you know, partake of the body and blood of Christ. So if you hear something about, well, there's this, this thing these Christians are doing where all of a sudden nobody's allowed to be there and they're talking about eating somebody's body <laughs> and drinking somebody's blood. You see how this would be misconstrued to say, are they, what are they eating somebody? Like, liter like, are they killing and eating people? What's going on here? So the early Christians respond to the cannibalism charge. And the interesting thing here is never once in those responses does one of the early Christian writers say, oh, we don't actually believe that it's the body and blood of Jesus. We're actually just doing a representative. This is kind of a, a symbolic thing. It doesn't really mean anything when they had every opportunity to do so. And if the early Christians had understood this to be a merely symbolic event, of course they would have said that, right, in these responses. They would have said, no, we're not cannibals. We don't really eat the body and blood of our Savior Jesus. We just partake of a symbolic meal. But they, they never do that. So how would you summarize with a few minutes here the testimony of the church fathers on the presence of Christ in the supper? Yeah, so the, the testimony of the church fathers really is one that just simply assumes that it actually is the body and blood of Christ. There is no significant debate about this matter, as we talked about at the very beginning, really at all. And so it's not like somebody starts saying, this is the body of Christ, and then somebody says, wait a minute, I think it's actually symbolic, and you have a back and forth. There's none of that whatsoever. It really is simply just taken for granted, which I think speaks very strongly that this was so clearly a central part of early Christian proclamation and early Christian practice that it didn't even really need to be said. It didn't need to be spelled out because it was so clear to the early Christians. This was not the kind of thing where you say, this is kind of a deep theological thing. They didn't really hash that out. Like Holy Communion is discussed constantly among the fathers. When you have new Christian converts, they are largely in the early church spending a number of years in the catechumenate prior to being baptized. And what are they looking forward to? Like the, they are looking forward to partaking of the body and blood of Christ. We're talking about a church that is not just partaking of this sacrament once a month as a little element of their worship service. We're talking about a church where this sacramental meal is really at the center of their gathering. It is at the center of their life and piety in many ways. So this is deeply important to them. So the idea that they would have just 
not really cared or something like that about it enough to debate about it just simply doesn't really make any sense historically in what they were dealing with so like i said before there there have been some arguments that tertullian had a kind of symbolic view maybe i'm not compelled by that reading of tertullian but that's really the only case where you have somebody that maybe diverges from what appears to be the standard and you know, of course, I haven't read every single church father and everything. So it's, you know, you could find, I'm sure, something out there that maybe you could interpret in that way. But it, certainly among the the most prominent fathers, the ones that we're consistently reading, it's pretty unanimous. It's a pretty clear testimony that they all believe that there is a an actual receiving of the body and blood of Christ in the sacrament. Again, like I said before, the particulars had not been hashed out. It does take some time to answer certain questions. You've got language about sacrifice that shows up that's interpreted in all different ways in the fathers. You have the question of, well, what is actually happening to the bread and the wine then if this is the body and blood of Christ? Those kinds of questions have not been hashed out yet, and it takes some time for those things to be debated. In the medieval period is when a lot of those debates start and, and into the Reformation, those debates are going on. But in terms of the just general conviction that this is the actual body and blood of Christ, there is near unanimity among the fathers on that issue. Dr. Jordan Cooper is executive director of Justin Sinner. He's president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, author of several books, including his latest, The Doctrine of God, and creator and host of a YouTube video titled Five Proofs That Christ's True Body and Blood Are Present in the Sacrament. You'll find a link to this video and to Dr. Cooper's latest book at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Jordan, thank you. Thank you. After the break, we'll replay a study of the Hymn of the Day for Ash Wednesday from Depth of Woe, I Cry to Thee. Our guest will be Dr. Arthur Just, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. You're connected to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.